Well, good morning. Uh, I want to start off saying a few things. First of all, of course, we forgot to mention the president. The uh, president's got coronavirus. We want to lift him up in prayers and, and all, of, uh, all of our government leaders uh, who have the virus. Uh, two things, I want to make two clarifications from last week. Uh, just to start off. You know, I listen to my sermons when I go to post them online. Uh, one thing I said uh, this past week was uh, I just preached to myself. That's, that, that did not come across the way I was thinking it when I said it. Uh, what I was meaning when I said I don't, I'm not preaching to you, just so you know when I'm preaching to you, I'm preaching to myself just as much. If anything, I'm just preaching to myself. What I was thinking was that when I'm sitting and writing my sermons and talking about what I'm going to get up here and say, I'm not picking your situations in your life that I may know of. I'm not preaching to your circumstance. If I know something's going on in your life, I don't get up here and preach on that to tell you what I want you to hear. I'll just tell you what I want you to hear. I don't preach to your circumstance. Um, so really, I was that, that just didn't come across right. But um, Which I'm sure you probably understood. Uh, also, another thing which I think you probably understood, but something that I had in the back of my mind I felt like I should address. When I gave you a challenge last week to pray for something to move the kingdom forward, to pray for something not selfish, I, I don't want you to... I want you to understand that the God says, do not test the Lord, okay? I know that you probably didn't think that when I was saying it. I wasn't trying to say, hey, pray some prayer and then test and see if God will answer it. That was not my, my heart when I was saying that. I was just saying, let's not pray selfish prayers. Let's not pray for things that benefit us. Take a moment, figure out something to pray for that's going to move God's kingdom forward, and you will be uh, you will be pleasantly surprised how God will answer your prayers, and that and that's what I meant to say. Okay, now we have got to jump into today's sermon because I've got a lot of scripture today, and um, you know how I said when I in Logos it tells me how long my sermons are based on how much words and scripture I put. And if it says 15 minutes, that's good for me because that's going to be 45, 50 minute sermon, you know. And uh, today it said I had a good 30 minute sermon here. So what I'm going to do is it's still going to be 45, 50 minutes, I'm sure. But um, I'm going to talk really fast. So if you're taking notes, be ready uh, to just write references down and and, and make little notes Um, and know that the sermon will go online so you can get what you miss later. Um, all right, let's, before we jump in, let's open up in prayer. Father, we love you so much, and Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we treasure your word. Your word is invaluable to us because your word is you. Your word is truth. Your word is life, that you have spoken through your word to tell us who you are and who we are and what life is about and how we can get through this and what can we expect. And so, therefore, your, fir- your word gives us, gives us encouragement and it gives us hope. And so, Father, I pray that as we study your word today, that it will sink into our hearts and that it will not just be a, a oh, that was good or neat or, or something I learned, but that it will be life-changing, that it will sink into us and actually change how we live our lives. And so, Father, that's what we're praying for today. We're praying for receptive hearts that you will soften and that you will mold more into your image. We love you, Father, and we thank you for your love. In Jesus' holy and precious and eternal name we pray. Amen. So we're working through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We're getting near the end. Um, 
We've made it to Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24 today, talking about treasures in heaven. And so if you have your own scripture, you can be turning there. I'm going to jump in. We're going to read these verses, and then we're going to talk about them. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 19. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now this should be a scary phrase for all Americans. And I say all Americans because we're all wealthy. The poorest of us in America are generally more wealthy than half the world. I mean, it's just true when you think about the wealth that we have in America. But Jesus gave us a warning. He said, uh, you cannot serve both God and money. There are many warnings against the pursuit of money in Scripture. So let's jump in them. Let's knock them out real quick and let's look at them. 1 Timothy 6, 8 through 10 says, If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is what? It's not the root of all evil, like we always say, but it is the root of all kinds of evil. That doesn't mean it's not any less true. It's just, it is the root of all kinds of evil. And we can think of all kinds of evil that money is the root of. We could sit here all day long and not, and not exhaust our list of evils that money is the root of. And by craving it, this is scary now, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Some have wandered away from the faith in pursuit of wealth. And that is something that we are warned that we must be careful of, mindful of, watching that we do not do. James 4.4 4 says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be friend, the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. And James 5.1-5 says this, Come now, you rich people, weep and wail over the miseries that are coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have stored up treasure in the last days. Look, the pay that you withheld from the workers who mowed your fields cries out, and the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of armies. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and have indulged yourselves. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Now, I'm going to tell you, I, I threw these in at the beginning of the sermon so that we can go ahead and hit them and then get past them. But here's the point. These are some of the harshest warnings that you'll get in the New Testament. I mean, if I think of all the warnings in the New Testament, there's not very many more that's as graphic and as vivid as, hey, uh, your, your gold and silver are corroded and a corrosion will be against 
who will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire and that you have fattened your heart in a day of slaughter. I mean, these are strong, harsh warnings and therefore should not be downplayed because that's always our first tendency. Always. When we hear something we don't like, immediately we try to downplay it. And we say, well, that's not talking to me. That's talking about those who will end up in hell. That's talking about people who are lost and I'm saved and forgiven. Therefore, I don't have to worry about this. No, that's what we naturally do. We will naturally take the verses we don't like and we'll just downplay them or try to figure out a way to to justify ourselves. And all I'm trying to say is, if God took the time to be this vivid and this harsh and this strong and stern about this, we need to take it with that much seriousness in our lives. We do. We need to be this serious about it. But, so, now that we know what not to do, which is don't chase after wealth, don't pursue wealth, because it's, it could lead you away from the faith, it could, it could, it could cause you to, to pierce yourselves with all kinds of, of problems. Now that we know what not to do, what are we to do? What are we to do? Now, let me just point out before I move on, Verse 4 says, look, the pay that you withheld from your workers who mowed your fields cries out, and the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of armies. I I wouldn't be doing justice to this text if I didn't point out the context. The context is this money was earned unrighteously. Okay? So this is someone who got wealthy by doing the wrong things, by withholding from other people, by taking advantage of other people. And we know many, many people can get extremely, extremely wealthy by doing sinful things. So that is the context, but that doesn't, ignore, that doesn't erase all the warnings that the pursuit of wealth itself, whether you do it right or whether you do it wrong, the pursuit of wealth will lead you to destruction. So what are we to do? 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19 says this. Now this is, this is Paul talking to Timothy, who is the pastor, the elder of church. And Paul is telling Timothy what to say to his congregation. So I like the pastoral epistles because I can read these. And this is exactly what God told me to tell the congregation. He said, instruct those who are rich in the present age, which by the way, all of us are. Okay, all of us are. Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God, who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of what is truly life. That sound familiar? Storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the coming age. Storing up treasures for yourself in heaven. So that's what we're supposed to be doing with wealth. Tell those, this was the instruction to those who are rich, which we can all take this as instructions to ourselves. Those who are rich, he did not say, take your money and throw it in the river. He said, use it for the kingdom. That's what he said. So in other words, if you got wealth, if you've earned it unrighteously, you need to ask for forgiveness, just like the tax collector did. Just, you know, if you've earned it unrighteously, you need to ask for forgiveness. If you've earned it righteously and God has just blessed you with wealth, 
I'll say that I don't quote him very often, but I'll quote anybody when they say something I believe is true. Um, Stanley? Not Charles. What's his son's name? Andy. Sorry, had a block. Andy Stanley said, you know what the definition of greed is? And this, is, this will always stick with me. I don't think I'll ever lose it. He said, the definition of greed is when you think that everything com- that comes into my possession is for my consumption. That's the definition of greed. Is when you think that everything that comes into my possession is for my consumption. And so that's what Jesus is hitting on here. That's what Paul is telling Timothy to teach here. Is that those who are wealthy, who have wealth, all of us have wealth, that we are to use it to store up treasure for ourselves as a good foundation in heaven. Now, so I want you to do a little, little imagining, because I'm going to ask you to do a lot of imagining, and if I don't keep talking quick, I'm going to be in trouble. All right, so I want you to do some imagining. When you think treasure, what's the first thing that pops in your mind? Chest. Treasure chest. Uh, absolutely. So treasure chest. Who has treasure chests? Pirates. Yarg. What do pirates do with their treasure? They bury them on, in, on islands. Why do they bury them on islands? Because if the ship goes down, they can't get their treasure back. So they bury it on islands so that they can always come back and get their treasure. Okay, so makes you, makes some people go around and spend their lives searching islands and, and for buried treasure. Um, I hope they find it so that they can get it and realize that it wasn't all that worth it and then they can spend their lives doing stuff that's actually worth it. But anyways, pirates, treasure. Okay, so when Jesus said, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, you think, when you think treasure for yourself here, we're not pirates, we don't have chests of gold. I assume we don't have chests of gold, but, but we're not pirates. So what do you think people normally think? Today, for us. Money. Okay. All right. So when you imagine treasure today, what do you imagine? Money. Lots of money, right? What was the, uh, what was the cartoon with the ducks that swam through all the gold? Y'all know what I'm talking about. What was his name? You, uh, you know the... The cartoon where at the beginning of the cartoon it opens up and the duck's got all this money and he swims through all the gold. Huh? Ducktails. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of that's what we're thinking here. Just big giant room full of gold. Swim all in it. Okay. All right. So let me ask you this. Because that's our natural tendency in the U.S., because that's naturally what we think. Now, I'm going to ask you this, and I don't want you to answer out loud because we're going to get to the answer later. But when you think and you read this passage... And Jesus says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Don't say it out loud. But what do you think those treasures in heaven that you're going to receive? If you store up treasures in heaven, what will that treasure in heaven look like that you're going to get? Because typically what we'll do is we'll preach this, we'll read this, we'll think it, and then we'll think, oh, that's good motivation right there. If I do good deeds now... I'll get a big treasure when I get to heaven. And that's kind of the mindset we Americans come from. Now, we're going to come back to that. All right. Matthew six nineteen. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in 
and steal. All right. Wayne Grudem, let's talk about heaven. Wayne Grudem uh, wrote this book called Systematic Theology that I have that's like ginormous. Um, But in chapter 57 on page 1,100 and something, 19, way in the back, uh, in this book, uh, he has a section called The New Heavens and New Earth. All right, so I want to spend the rest of our sermon talking about heaven because that's, that's the key here. Wayne Grudem says, in fact, heaven may be defined as follows. Heaven is the place where God most fully makes known his presence to bless. Heaven is the place where God most fully makes known his presence to bless. Why is, why do we, why is it said like that? Why is it his presence to, to bless? Because the truth is, the scripture teaches us that God's presence is, in fact, everywhere. When we read Psalm 139, 7 to 12, it says, Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I live at the eastern horizon or settle at the western limits, even there your hand will lead me. Your right hand will hold on to me. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night shines like the day. Darkness and light are like to you. There is nowhere that God's presence is not. And so we use it oftentimes as a way to help people understand. But it's it's because we don't want to get into the the weeds and the thick of it. But the truth is, God's in, we say that hell is a place where you're banished from God's presence. God's presence is there too. It's just not manifested in a way in which blessings flow from his presence. Does that make sense? But heaven is the opposite. In which heaven, God's presence is there. But heaven is a place where he has taken saints who have died. And he has made them righteous and perfect. And by making us righteous and perfect, saints made perfect in heaven, it says that he can now, we can be in his presence in heaven in a way that we can't be in his presence anywhere else. He can bless us in a way that he can't bless us any other way. And we're going to get to some of those verses real quick. So, what, so if God is everywhere, then what's different about his presence in heaven? It's his ability to bless freely. In heaven, everything is blessed in heaven. He blesses everything. He blesses the people. He blesses the 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 angels. He blesses the trees. It says the tree of life is there in the city, and it bears fruit. And there's a river. He blesses the river. He blesses everything. Everything is blessed by God in heaven, and it, His blessings flow, flow freely. Everything operates the way He wants them to operate. But I want to focus on a second that it is, we, we got to sink into this. Because this, if, if this, what I'm about to get into, does not sink in, I don't feel like we're going to change how we live. Okay? So this is, this is crucial. And you know, a lot of people, they can take sermons like this and they can break it up into a series. And I just can't do it. So I'm, I'm going to try. I promise. I'm going to try to get through this. But if this doesn't sink in, I don't think we're going to change how we live. This has to sink in. Heaven is a real place. We know this, but it's got to sink in. It's got to sink in to the point that we live it. Heaven is real. 
Acts 1, 9 through 11. After he had said this, Jesus, Jesus was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven, and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. Jesus went into a real place. And then two angels showed up. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus who has been ta- taken from you into heaven will come, into this, come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. Jesus who ate with them. Jesus said, "Who t- touch me. He had a glorified body. Jesus said, touch me. Touch me, Thomas. Touch my hands. Touch my side. He ate breakfast with them. He said, give me some food to eat. Jesus, who was real, went up to a real place. Heaven opened up and he went into heaven. It's a real place. Now, it is another realm. It's a spiritual realm, but it doesn't make it any less real. Jesus left our realm and lifted up into the air and entered the heavenly realm with his glorified body. God also, if we look at some others, God allowed Moses and Elijah to travel between the two realms. Remember this? After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and his brother John, led them up on a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured in front of them, and his face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. Suddenly, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you want, I will set up three shelters here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down and were terrified people can travel humans jesus angels they can travel between these two real realms and when they leave our real realm and go into the heavenly spiritual realm they don't start they don't just instantly become not real and then they're not real in heaven and then when they come back they're real again on earth because we can touch them and see them and talk to them that's not how it works heaven is just as real as earth And if anything, I would say it's more real because earth is temporary and can be destroyed and heaven cannot. The the foundations of heaven cannot be shaken. It's more real. All right. God allowed Stephen to see into the heavenly realm from earth. When they heard these things, they were enraged and gnashed their teeth at him. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. God allowed, opened up heaven, God allowed Stephen, a man on earth, just like you and me, to actually look into the heavenly realm. He saw the glory of God, because he couldn't see the face of God, but he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, look, I see heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He allows angels to travel between the realms, as we saw earlier when Jesus ascended to heaven and at his tomb, but also even for us today. Still today, he still allows angels to come back and forth. How do I know? Because Hebrews 13, 2, which is long after Jesus had ascended and went back to heaven, during the New Testament church, this is a teaching to the New Testament church to us. Don't neglect to show hospitality, for by doing so, some have welcomed angels as guests without knowing it. No, they don't have big wings. You will not spot an angel because they have this big giant jacket on that's got this big, you know, feathers coming out of it. That's not how you spot angels. They look just like you and me. And by welcoming them into our house or picking them up on the side of the road, which I don't encourage, uh, just 
blatantly for y'all to do in this day and age. But my point is, by helping someone, you could be helping an actual angel and never know it. Never know it. It's a real place, a real realm. And I would say it's even more real than the one we live in. Now, so here's a question. Imagine that you are one of these people, that you're Moses or Elijah or Stephen or, or, or one of these angels, and you're in one realm. Are your surroundings real here? Is all this real? Yeah. If you step into the spiritual realm, into heavenly realm, in heaven, is all your surroundings going to be just as real there too? Yes. Yes. We, we, we read descriptions of heaven and we see descriptions of things, clothing, of buildings, of things. They're just as real there. Heaven is not any less real than earth. Will they merge for eternity one day? Yes. One day they will merge. God's going to create a new heavens and a new earth, and he's going to destroy the old heavens and old earth, and the heavenly city of Jerusalem is going to come down from heaven and be placed on the new earth. And they're going to be merged again. And then what's going to happen? You know, in heaven where God's blessings flow uninterrupted in heaven, that's where they're going to start flowing on the new earth again. And we're going to live on the new earth with him with blessings galore uninterrupted, unhindered. We got to remember that. We got to think about that. We got to let that sink into our lives. So, but, but, and I, I, I want to get into now what does heaven look like now. But before I do, I want to tell you a story that never happened about a rich man who got what no one had ever gotten the chance to do before. Okay? So, a rich man was coming to the end of his life and he had acquired lots and lots of wealth. And, uh, and God was favorable towards him. He, he acquired it in the right way. He came and sent an angel to him and let him know that his time was coming up soon. And he, he begged the angel, can, can I please bring all the money that I've acquired with me? And the angel said, no, you know as well as I do, you can't take anything into heaven. He said, please, 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 ask God, please. And so he prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed, and God answered his prayer, sent the angel back. angel came back, and he showed up with a suitcase. And he said, God has decided to answer your prayer. Here's one suitcase. You can only bring what you can put in this suitcase, and you must have it buried with you. When I come to get you, I'll get the suitcase as well. He said, okay. So he went and sold his house, sold everything he had, had it all converted to gold bars put it in the suitcase, and that night he died. Buried with the suitcase, and angel came and picked him up, brought him to heaven. Here he is at the gates, and St. Peter's at the gate, checking the roll call. And so he's coming in to, to, to heaven, and he's got a suitcase, and St. Peter says, no, 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 you can't bring anything in with you. I don't even know how you got that up here. And he said, no, 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 go talk, go talk to God. He told me I could have it. So St. Peter went and checked it out and brought it back and said, okay. But he said, I had to check the contents first. Put that suitcase up there, opened it up. And St. Peter said, you brought pavement? <laughs> you get one chance to bring anything you want and you bring pavement? 
Of course, obviously that didn't happen. But, and I just want to point out, St. Peter's not at the gate doing a roll call. I know that many people believe that. Nowhere in the scripture ever, anywhere in the scripture does it say anything about St. Peter standing at the gate checking roll when you get there. But anyways, just had to throw that out there. But that's what heaven is like. How do we know? Because God, thankfully, because he's such a good God and wants to tell us things, he told us what heaven looks like. Let's look at it. This is the part I got to go real fast. What, where my time? Okay, all right, we're, we're, we're going to get there. All right. He then carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. This is, this is John, the apostle John talking. He then carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Arrayed with God's glory, her radiance was like a precious jewel, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. The city had a massive high wall with 12 gates. Twelve angels were at the gates. The names of the 12 tribes of Israel's sons were inscribed on the gates. There were, there were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. The city wall had 12 foundations. And the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb were on the foundations. The one who spoke with me had a golden measuring rod to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. The city is laid out in a square. Its length and width are the same. He measured the city with the rod at 12,000 stadia. You know how far 12,000 stadia is? 1,400 miles. 1,400 miles. It's 1,400 miles long that way, and it's 1,400 miles long that way. That, oh, and that way. It's 1,400 miles height as well. You say, nobody can build a city like that. God can, and he did. He built this city. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, which y'all all know, right? 144 cubits. 200 feet. The wall is 200 feet thick according to human measurement which the angel used. In other words, and he just threw this in here, the angel measured these things so that we could understand how long they are with human measurements. 1,400 miles, 200 thick thick foot wall. You know what I'm saying. The building material of its wall was jasper and the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The city was made of gold. The city was gold. And the rich man decided he wanted to bring some gold. And they looked at him and like, (laughs) okay. The foundations of the city wall were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first foundation is jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates are twelve pearls. Each individual gate was made of a single pearl. And you say, how can you make a huge gate out of a single pearl? With a huge oyster. Oyster. That's how you do it. He said, dinosaurs are all huge. God can make a huge oyster if he wants to. The main street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. The street, that's where we get the streets are paved with gold. The street was made of pure gold. I did not see a temple in it because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. In other words, no more need for sacrifices. 
The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God illuminates it and its lamp is the lamb. Now this is where we, and and I'll read it again in just a minute, this idea that there will be no dark in heaven at all. Like it's all light, there will never be dark. And and all I want to say is this, and I could be wrong, but from the way I understand it, the city in the gates, in the city, because that's where God and Jesus are, will never be be dark but when it comes down onto the new earth it'll be day all day long but i still imagine i could be wrong i still imagine you would be able to leave the city and go explore the earth and at some point go to a place where there is night and be able to see the stars and those kind of things that's just the way i take it i could be wrong but but that's just how i take it for now the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of god illuminates it and its lamp is the lamp The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never close by day because it will never be night there. They will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. Then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Down the middle of the city's main street, the tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for healing the nations. And there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. People will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Now look at this real quick. Verse 21 said, The gates were made of solid pearl. The main street is paved in gold. And the building materials of the walls were jasper, precious stones. So the city is made from precious stones and gold and all of these wonderful, wonderful things. The wall is made from jasper. The poorest person in heaven is going to be more wealthy than the most wealthy person on the planet earth. The most wealthy person on the planet earth, if they were to take that wealth and then try to enter the kingdom of heaven, people would look at them and say, I'm so sorry. Come on in. We'll take care of you. And he'll be like, what do you mean you'll take care of me? You know, it's like, I'm, you know, that, that, that's how it is. But the city size, and I just throw this in for y'all, the size of the city is almost incomprehensible. Look at this. This is Yatesville. Let me go over here. This is Yatesville. This is Silver City, New Mexico. And you say, you didn't draw your line straight. That's a trapezoid, not a square. Well, you know, it's a globe, right? Maybe y'all may not know this. The globe is round. And so what happens is when they take the, the, the land on the globe and they flatten it out for a map, all the parts up top that, you know, is curved it gets stretched out bigger. So you may not realize that, but at the top of your map, when it shows all the land, it looks massively huge. But what it is is because it has to be put on a flat map, it gets stretched out real big. So the map kind of gets stretched out. So this is a square, but on a map, it looks like a trapezoid. This is how big the heavenly city of Jerusalem is. This is how big. 
stat. <laughs> the city is gold. I don't care how much gold you can acquire in your life. When you show up to the gates of this city that's made of gold, that's not just this long and this wide, but it's that tall too. It's from here. Imagine you're standing in Yatesville and you're looking to Silver City, New Mexico. Just imagine it. Now grab that line and stand it up. That's how tall the city is. And it's gold. We show up with all the wealth we can accumulate. And they're like, you can leave that there. We don't need any more. It's massive. You got to get this. We got to get this. We got to get this. Because if we don't, we're just going to keep chasing after this stuff. Now let's look at Jesus' words again. He said, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. Now, when I asked you earlier to think about that treasure that you would get, when I asked you to imagine what's the treasure going to look like that you're going to get if you store up treasures for yourself, I would imagine most of us actually thought of treasures. I actually thought of like, oh, I may get a gold staff to walk around with. Or I may get, you know, this, this money. Or I may get coins. Or I may get... Or, or goblets or pretty things to drink out of or, or whatever. Like we might have actually thought treasure. That is not what you're going to get. You're not going to get to, oh, it's gone. But you're not going to get to that city and God say, you did so good. You gave to so many people. You did exactly what I wanted you to do. Here, take some pavement. He's not going to say that. The treasures we're going to get when we get to heaven, the treasures that we're storing up in heaven is not possessions. It's not things. It's people. It's people. It says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And all I'm saying is, growing up in America, we know where our hearts have been. Treasure. Wealth. We've got to get God to change our hearts. To be focused on people. Store up for yourselves treasure in heaven means store up for yourselves people in heaven. So how do you store up for yourselves people in heaven? Well, one way is by using that money to show people the love of God. That's one way. If you have worldly wealth, which we all do, then use it to your advantage to help people and to help win people to Christ. That's what we need to be doing with our wealth. We need to be helping people, showing people the love of God, and we need to be winning people to Christ. And I'm going to give you two examples. One way to help people is to help people who are in need. 
James 1.27 says, Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Pure and undefiled religion is to look after orphans and widows, to help people who are in need. That's one way. Matthew 19.21, If you want to be perfect, Jesus said to him, Go sell your belongings and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Give your belongings to the poor, Help them, show the love of God to them, and that will draw them to God. And anything you do for people, God, he's going to bless you for. Matthew ten forty two, And whoever gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he is a disciple, truly I tell you, he will never lose his reward. And Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, Matthew 25, 31 to 46, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will also say to those on the left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't take me in. I was naked, and you didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you didn't take care of me. Then they too will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or without clothes or sick or in prison and not help you? Then he will answer them, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. One way we can use the wealth that we have is to do good for people on this earth. And by doing good for them, God takes it as doing good for him. Because that's his, that, those are the ones he wants to save as well. Those are the ones he wants to love. And even if they are saved, those are his children. Either way you want to look at it, whether they're saved or not, it doesn't matter. It doesn't change. <clears throat> and another way to use, is to use worldly wealth to bring people to Christ. Luke 16, 1 through 13 says this. Now he said to the disciples, there was a rich man who received an accusation that, that his manager was squandering his possessions. So he called the manager in and asked, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you can no longer be my manager. Then the manager said to himself, What will I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I'm removed from management, people will welcome me into their homes. So he summoned each one of his master's debtors. How much do you owe my master? He asked the first one. A hundred measures of olive oil, he said. Take your invoice, he told him. Sit down quickly and write 50. Next, he asked another. You, how much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat, he said. Take your invoice, he told him, and write 80. The master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. See, he did the right thing. This guy did the right thing. 
For the children of this age are more shrewd than the children of light in dealing with their own people. And what Jesus is saying here, the lost people are more effective at trying to do what they want to do than y'all are. And that's sad. I mean, he condemns us for that. Then he says, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of worldly wealth so that when it fails, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. Whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. So if you have not been faithful with worldly wealth, who will trust you with what is genuine? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to someone else, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. See, the man's ability to use his, his, his leverage, his power to his advantage, wasn't going to last much longer because he was being fired, right? So his ability to do his job wasn't going to last much longer because he was going to be fired soon. Our ability to use money to our advantage isn't going to last much longer because we're going to get fired from this earth. We're going to die soon. And that's the story. This guy had a limited time to do what he could. We have a limited time to use the resources the way that we can. He used his leverage while he could to make friends that he would still have after he lost his job. You see that? He used the leverage he had to make friends that he would still have after he lost his job. And that's what we're to do. We're to use the wealth and money and leverage we have to make friends that we will still have after we leave this earth in heaven. We're to use wealth in any means necessary, as long as it's not sinful, to win people to Christ. And so this idea, I was very opposed to it when I was younger. I'm not opposed to it anymore. But this idea that you say, hey, let's, let's, uh, let's buy the kids pizza and get them in here and then, and then have a Bible study with them. Like, that's, they're coming for the wrong reason. That's not what we should do. Hello, Jesus said, if you can buy them into the kingdom, buy them into the kingdom. I mean, you can't. You can't literally buy someone into the kingdom, but if you can use your money or wealth to get them to come sit in your home and listen to you across the table and then share the gospel that they may repent and believe, use your wealth to get them into your home to sit across from your table so you can share the gospel so that they may repent and believe. Use your wealth in any non-sinful means necessary to gain people and win people for a kingdom because what you're going to do is you're going to take your treasure on earth and you're going to use it and spend it in such a way that you're going to store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. People. Because when you get to that city, I can't pull it up, but when you get to that city that's made of gold and wealth is everywhere and there's, I mean, it doesn't matter how much wealth you attain, it's everywhere. What are you going to treasure? What are you going to treasure? And I promise you, when you get to heaven, you're not going to treasure wealth. You're going to treasure people. That's what you're going to treasure. When you get to heaven, the one thing you're going to want most is people. 
And next to Jesus, who is a person, people. So use your wealth now in such a way that you're storing up what you really are going to treasure in heaven, people. Now, don't push the, the thing too far. It says, Jesus said, make, yourself, make friends for yourselves by means of worldly wealth so that when it fails, they may welcome you into the eternal king, dwellings. It doesn't mean pay off priests so that when you die, they'll welcome you into heaven. That's not what this is saying because they can't allow you into heaven. But guess what they can do? Welcome you. That's what it's saying. It's not use your wealth so that people in heaven will allow you into heaven. Only Jesus allows people into heaven. But if Jesus allows you into heaven, they will be there to welcome you into heaven. Now I'm going to tell you, this sermon has really really, really made me sit down and give a lot of thought to how I spend my wealth on this planet. It has. Now, don't don't worry. I don't have any bad habits that I know of unless Sunkist is one. But, you know, I mean, don't worry. I'm I'm not convicted over that. But it's this idea that I'm not going to value any worldly wealthy thing this planet has to offer when I leave this place. I won't. There will not be a day in heaven where I'm going to look back at earth and say, man, I really miss so-and-so. I wish I would have gained more such-and-such. I wish I would have spent more on myself. I will never, ever, ever say that. But I will, without a doubt, say, I wish I had spent my money more wisely so that maybe one more person might be here. I will think that. And all of us will. So it makes me think. If I was in heaven and got used to it and knew what it was like, and then I was given an opportunity to come back to earth for another 40 years, and God said, okay, I'm going to send you back for 40 more years like an angel, it makes me wonder how would I live? How would I dress? How would I eat? How would I save? What would I save for? How would I give? The way I spend money now, how much is spent on needs and how much is spent on wants? Or in Yatesville, wants. Because honestly, that's how I say it. I don't say wants, I say wants. I'm about to say something that after this whole sermon is going to sound very controversial, but please just hear me through. I think you should use your money first on your needs. I also include saving as a need, as long as it's saving for the right things. Because you need to save for the right things. That's a need. Once you do that, you know what I think you should spend the rest of your money on? Your wants. That's the controversial part. Let me explain. Right now, (coughs) 
We all do it. That's what we all do. We, we spend money on our needs, and then we spend the rest on our wants. Now, you say, no, I save my money. What do you save it for? Are you saving it for your needs, or are you saving it for your wants? Because once you figure that out, then you just drop it in one of those two categories. You're spending it on your needs, or you're spending it on your wants. This is the key. I think you should, because that's what we all do, and I don't think there's any way out of that trap. The reason I think you should spend your money on your needs first and then spend all the rest on your wants, the reason I think you should is because here's the key to this. If you can want the right things, it'll make it so much easier. If you can want to spend your money on the kingdom, if you can want to spend your money helping people, for storing up real treasures in heaven, then that's what I want you to do. I want you to spend your money on your needs first and then spend it on your wants, but you got to ask God to change your wants. And that's the only way out of this. You say, well, I spend it on things I don't need to spend it on. I spend it on selfish things. I spend it on things that make, give me temporary happiness or temporary secure feeling or, or whatever it is. Okay, well, that's what you want to do. That's why you're doing it. Now ask God to change your wants so that then you can live freely and you can spend your money on your needs and then you can spend your money on your wants with no guilt and pleasure and enjoyment and knowing that what I'm spending my money on is going to last and it's going to matter. So I do think you should spend your money on your needs and then spend the rest on your wants. You just got to ask God to change your wants to be his wants. That's how we can change how we live. That's how we can actually take this sermon, apply it to our lives, beg for God to help us do this, and actually live different lives when we leave this place. I'm telling you, I've been, I've been struggling over this this week, about what this could mean, what are the implications, and what does God want me to do? And I hope he shows it to me clearly, and I hope he gives me the courage to do it. Because I want to get to the end of my life And feel like I have stored up treasures for myself in heaven. Not treasure chests, but treasures, real treasures. What I'm really going to treasure when I get there. People. That's what I want at the end of my life. Last verse, Hebrews 13.5. Keep your life free from the love of money, but be satisfied with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you or abandon you. What is the greatest, the number one greatest treasure you could ever have? It's God himself. Above people, above every person on this earth is God himself. That's the greatest treasure you could ever have. And God already told us here, write this down, Hebrews 13, 5. God has already told us, you have me. I won't leave you. I won't abandon you. You have me. And when we can get that to sink in, that we have the greatest treasure we could ever have when we feel and believe we have the greatest treasure we could ever have, it then gives us the ability to let go of our desires for all these other meaningless temporary treasures that will not satisfy and will only leave us empty. 
That's how you can keep your life free from the love of money. And that's how you can be satisfied with what you have. Because God himself has said, I will never leave you or abandon you. And when you know I have the greatest treasure, you can't give me anything greater than I have. You can't entice me with anything greater than I already have. I can be satisfied with what I have. I can be satisfied. But if we're not careful... We'll go right back out and we'll forget everything I just said. Me too. I'll forget everything I just said if we're not careful. That's why Jesus is so harsh. That's why Jesus was so stern. That's why Jesus used such vivid language and imagery. Because we get sucked into the temporary and we forget the eternal. We forget what's really important. We forget what's really real and we get sucked into life. Worldly life. And we, that's why we need each other. That's why we need a church. That's why we need encouragement. And that's why we need to, to daily immerse ourselves in God's truth. I love you. I, you. You know I love you. I say it every Sunday. You know I love you. And you know what? I don't love you near as much as God loves you. If you don't get anything from my pastoral time here at the church, I hope you always remember those phrases. I love you, but I don't love you as much as God loves you. God loves you. He has warned us. He has told us we can easily get sucked into the pursuit of wealth. But he's also told us what's eternal, what's important, what's going to matter. And it's up to us to say to ourselves, do I really, really believe it? Do I really, really believe it? Because if I don't really, really believe it, I'm not going to live it. Is that how you spell believe? Be, live? To be? That's how I am to be, to live. That's how I'm going to live. Uh, and I hadn't thought about that. But that's what the word believe is. To live. If you believe it, you will live it. We got to get this in our brains. We got to get this in our hearts. We got to let this sink in. We got to meditate on it. And I pray that you will spend the week thinking about it. Don't brush it aside when you go to lunch today. Think about it. Think about it this week. Write a little note. Put it on your, your, your mirror when you get up in the morning so that it will remind you to think about it. All right. I love y'all. I'm excited. I know I've been yelling. I know I seem upset. Oh, I'm excited. I've already been through this all week. Now it's your turn. <laughs> I've been struggling with what the implications of this is all week. Now you get to struggle this week. But I, hey, I'm telling you, it's worth it. Don't store up for yourselves pavement. Store up for yourselves people. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. And Father, we thank you for letting us know ahead of time what life is going to be like, what reality is like, so that we don't spend our times chasing after pavement, but that we would spend our times, time here, chasing after people. We love you, Father. Help us do it. And we know that when we pray, Give us opportunities, open doors, make a way for us to share your gospel. We know you will always answer those prayers. Give us the courage to actually do it when you open those doors. We love you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.